to the Icon Church podcast. Icon Church is one church in five locations. Our vision is human flourishing. We pray that this podcast helps you to flourish in life. For any more information about Icon Church, log on to our website at www.icon.church. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Great. I'll mention the elephant in the room because everybody mentioned it in the first service. Shirt and tie. I know I don't normally wear shirt and tie, but um, I, I, I got dressed for a wedding yesterday and I thought I kind of like it. So I thought I'll give it a go in, give it a go in church. Why only get dressed up for weddings? Hey, uh, my youngest son, Sam, says this, is my, like, this shirt's like my Tesco uniform. <laughs> so he, he says, like, you wear that shirt, Dad, when you've got a service at 11 and a shift at 1.30. <laughs> anyway, you can take your seats. That's the biggest laugh I'll get all day. Oh, Sam is so funny. Fantastic. Anyway, better, better, better get a riddle on. I've got to get to Tesco's. <laughs> yeah. oh, just want to, if you're here for the first time, I want to give you a huge welcome. But also, if you're watching online for the first time, I want to give you a, a huge welcome to Icon Church uh, too today. It's so good. And isn't, isn't it great? Summer's started, but church is still full and alive and things are happening. And those testimonies, what an incredible things uh, that we've been able to, to see. This is the final week of three parts uh, on a series about David and Goliath uh, called You Are Not the Underdog, looking at it from kind of different perspective, different angle. Um, And we've been sharing this in all our locations, and so all our locations today will get this message too in Sheffield and in Derby. And I want to talk today about the third part, which is this, your enemy is not as powerful as you think. In week one, we talked about bringing your boldest self to your biggest challenges, that when we face challenges in life, how, like David, can we be bold or bring our boldest self in those times? We will feel fear. We will feel concern, worry. These challenges may seem to be overwhelming, but how can we bring our best self and our boldest self? And then last week, I talked about the law of desirable difficulty. Not in one sense that any difficulty is desirable or that you'd wish for it or you'd go sign me up for some of that difficulty, but how sometimes in those moments... You know, our our biggest challenges become our greatest breakthroughs in our life. And so those those difficulties prove in some sense to be desirable. And so today I want to talk about your enemy is not as powerful as you think. And in this story, of course, the enemy, well, first of all, it's the Philistines. The Philistine people who've come from Crete, they've landed on the shores on on the west. And now they're making their way to Jerusalem. They're making their way because they want to displace Israel from the land. They want to take over Israel. And uh, Israel has sent their forces to meet them so that they can advance no further. And they're in the Valley of Elah. Interestingly, I found a film on Netflix called The Valley of Elah, which Jeannie and I watched. Nothing to do with David and Goliath, but it was all right. It was watchable. Just a little advert for that film, I thought. But they're in the Valley of Elah, and the Philistines are on one ridge, and the Israelites are on the other. And I don't know who decided, but somehow they've decided we're going to settle this battle in single combat. So Goliath keeps coming into the valley, and he keeps speaking to the Israelites, saying, send me your champion, and let's fight. And whoever wins, that, that army has won. So I'd like to read some verses to get us going this morning about Goliath and about that um, the things that Goliath says and the things that Goliath does. So I'm going to read those just to kick us off this morning as we begin to think about our enemy is not as powerful as we think. So I'm going to read, first of all, from verse 4 to 11. 1 Samuel 17, 4 to 11. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, 
came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in the span. The people who uh, interpret the Bible and have written the Bible say that's nine, nine foot nine. Some others have questioned that and said, no, no, it's, it's actually six foot nine. But even back then, if it was six foot nine, you know, that would be a giant in those days because we're a lot bigger now, 3,000 years on. And uh, he had a bronze helmet and on his head and wore a coat of scale armor on bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, nine stone. And, uh, and of course, the, 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 let me just say the nine foot nine is correct according to the rendering of the, you know, the, the scriptures. Anyway, on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod with its iron point weighing 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you, the servants of Saul, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and servants. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Then I'm going to jump to verse 16 that says this. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. A few more verses, 22 to 24. David's come to bring some supplies to his uh, brothers. And it says, David left these supplies with the keeper of supplies. He ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw this man, they all fled from him in great fear. And finally, just a few more verses, verses 41 to 48. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Because he wasn't a boy, he wasn't glowing with health, and he wasn't handsome. He said to David, I had that bit in, by the way. Uh, He said to David, am I a dog um, that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, or the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Your enemy is not as powerful as you think. I believe that we can make false assumptions about battles that we face. And false assumptions about the enemy. And that's what I want to talk about today. I I think if anybody is going to fight Goliath on Goliath's terms, there's no chance of winning. Goliath is a giant. He's a champion. He's tall. He's strong. Champion to champion, Goliath is winning all the time. But thankfully, David decided to fight this battle not on Goliath's terms. And we make false assumptions about our enemy and our battles that we face Sometimes we make the assumption that we think that our hearts have to be full of fear. 
There's no doubt about it. We will feel fear and we'll feel, feel afraid because that's a natural emotion. And we should never feel condemned because we feel fear. But we make the assumption that we have to feel that fear all the time. We make the assumption that our heart has to fail. That actually when our heart gets discouraged and our heart gets despondent, that we have to live continually in the midst of our battle in that despondency. But who says we do? It can be a false assumption that we make about our enemy. We believe that we're the underdog. That actually that we are overwhelmed. That we don't have the resources that we need. And we live with that assumption that we aren't able to win and fight in this battle. But who says we can't? I believe that we make these false assumptions about battles and about our enemy. We make the false assumption that we're under-resourced. But I want to show us today that God provides the resources that we need. And we make the assumption that we are overwhelmed, that we cannot win. And I believe that if we fight on the enemy's terms, all those assumptions are true. But when we choose to fight our battles the way God has instructed us, all those assumptions are are false. No one, champion to champion, is beating Goliath. No one. He's a machine. He's terrifying. They've got no chance. But fight him on some different terms. Then Goliath is the one who's got no chance. You know, Goliath's tactics are well known. Um, you, you can hear them in his taunts, in his defiance of Israel. He, he says, come to me. He keeps saying to them, come to me, come to me. It tells us that he moves closer to David to look him over. Because his assumption, his <clears throat> determination is let's fight hand to hand. And, uh, you know, because my size, my strength, my weaponry, the protection I've got, no one is going to defeat me in that com combat. But what we don't see, if we view Goliath through his own desires and his own tactics, what we don't see are his weaknesses, his potential weaknesses. He may have weaknesses that we're unaware of. He may have weaknesses that the Israelites are unaware of. You know, uh, people, it's true that when uh, people grow outside the, the normal spectrum of size and growth, e even, even today, and so they, you can extrapolate this backwards and say this would be true in his day. It's usually because people have a disease called acromegaly. And uh, we don't know if Goliath had that disease. Nobody tested his blood. But when people grow and they keep on growing and don't stop growing, when they're way outside the normal spectrum, they, they usually do have this disease. And with this disease comes some challenges as these people continue to grow and they continue to move forward. One of the challenges is usually poor eyesight as they continue to grow. Malcolm Gladwell actually wrote a book called David and Goliath, and he's assumed, actually, in his book that Goliath has got this disease. And he's taken little phrases and little things that are in the texts that I've read to you this morning to say these could be proofs that Goliath actually had these weaknesses. I'm going to share them with you. I only can say that they're assumptions. We don't know for certain because we have not taste tested Goliath's blood. But usually, people have, with this disease have poor eyesight. Gladwell suggests that when Goliath is saying, come to me, when Goliath is moving forward to look David up and down, it's because he's got poor eyesight. He talks about another phrase when Goliath says, why do you come at me with sticks? But David's only got one stick. He's not got two or three. He's suggesting he may have poor eyesight. Malcolm Gladwell reads into the text that Goliath isn't just partnered into the valley by an attendant, but Goliath is led into the valley 
by an attendant so that he can keep a sure footing and so on as he moves. He assumes that Goliath moves slowly. And as I've said already, that Goliath has got poor eyesight. If Goliath's tactics are well known, come to me, fight with me, hand to hand, then the, our enemy's tactics are also well known. Our enemy has got nothing new. He's only got what he's always had, what he had in the Garden of Eden, what he had in the wilderness with Jesus. The enemy's tactics in our lives are still the same. There's nothing new. Jesus tells us that his goal is clear. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus says, the thief, he's a thief. He wants to rob us and steal from us. That's why never do, never do any deal with the enemy. Because all the enemy wants to do is steal, rob, take from us. The thief comes to kill, steal and destroy. But then Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life in its fullness. But he tells us the enemy's tactics. There is tactics. Kill, steal and destroy. At 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, Peter writes this, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. The devil's tactics is to make himself look like a roaring lion. It doesn't say that he is a roaring lion. It just says he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I heard a preacher many years ago saying, don't be fooled by this verse. It doesn't say that the enemy is a roaring lion. It says he's just like a roaring lion. He's actually just a mouse with a loudspeaker. We make this assumption because our enemy tries to make itself and himself look bigger than he is. He's got nothing new. His arsenal is well known. It's been true for multiple thousands of years. All he's got in his arsenal is temptation, fear, lies, a bad report, isolation, and intimidation. But I want to look at a couple of those tactics of the enemy today and to see the antidote that God has given us. Because don't forget that Jesus said, yes, you've got an enemy that comes as a thief to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come to give you life. In other words, I've provided for you the weaponry you need to overcome the enemy because your enemy is not as powerful as you think you are. I want to start with isolation. This is always the enemy's tactic. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, The Great Divorce, talks about this tactic. And, uh, and by the way, we've been celebrating this week some of the results of people getting, um, you know, uh, university degrees, etc. I think Vicky Eakes in Sheffield, she got first in a university degree, which was awesome. Uh, I, I say that just to say that, you know, C.S. Lewis got a triple first from Oxford. I'm not quite sure how that happens, but he did. So he's just slightly more intelligent than me. But I, <coughs> I love C.S. Lewis's books because they're stories, but they're theology. They're deep theology in story form. And in his book, The Great Div Divorce, he describes hell as a place where people keep moving away, where they keep moving away from the city of God and they keep moving away from each other into isolation. Because it's always the enemy's tactic, isolation. It, I have, I'm not quoting now. I'm going to paraphrase uh, a, a passage from C.S. Lewis's book where he says, my friend down the street um, uh, happened to have a telescope. And we would uh, go to his house on occasion. And we would look through his telescope. And we could see the lights of those who had chosen to live far away. Far away, millions of miles far away from the city of God and millions of miles from each other. And as we looked, occasionally we saw those lights move further still. 
In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes hell as people moving away from the city of God and moving away from each other into isolation. It's always been the enemy's tactic. We see it here in this story. Israel and David, come to me. Let me get you on my own. Come to me. Let, me. let me get you in that alone moment, in that isolation. We see it in the garden with Adam and Eve, where the serpent comes to Adam alone. She's not got her companion, her partner, her supporter, as they were there in the garden together to be one and support and care and lead together as man and woman. But she's alone. And in isolation, the enemy comes. It's always been his tactic. We see it with Jesus in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness praying and fasting for 40 days. He's alone. He's not got his disciples. He's not got his friends. He's not got his family. He's all alone. And the enemy comes to him all alone. We see it in the life of Elijah. We see it several times in the life of Elijah. But we first see it when Elijah's just about to take on the prophets of Baal. And Elijah is praying to God and he's crying out to God and he's lamenting. He's, 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 he's desperate. And he says this, the King James Version puts it like this, which is quite poetic and, and good. It says, I and only I are left, Lord. I'm all on my own. This battle this weight, this burden. I'm all on my own. And God says to him, no, you're not. I've got 50 people who have not bowed the knee. 50 other prophets, actually, who have not bowed the knee. The enemy wants you to think that you're all alone in the fight, but you're not. You're not alone in the fight. You know, there's something happening in our society right now. I don't normally speak into politics and don't normally speak too much into society, but I want to talk about this this morning. It's called identity politics. Because I believe its purpose ultimately is division and destruction. And the purpose of identity politics is that we identify with some group or some tribe or some thought. And then we separate ourselves from anyone who doesn't agree with us. So the purpose is to set men against women. So if I'm a man, I can't relate well to women. If you're a woman, you can't relate relate well to men and that, there's, this, there's these politics going on that set us apart and a man can't speak into women's issues and women can't speak into men's issues and so on. Its purpose is to set us apart and to put us in isolation, to set nation against nation, religion against religion, to set gay against straight, to set black against white, to set you against me. Its purpose is division. This is the philosophy of identity politics. Its mantra is this, life is a battle between good people and evil people. And if you and I disagree, you are evil. That's its mantra. And we cannot work together. You know, we've got this in our society. And what happens in this is we will just find ourselves in ever-decreasing circles of isolation. I might, I might be able to identify with my male tribe. And at first that sounds great, but then I fall out with my male friend. So I'm in a smaller circle. And then I fall out with my other male friend because I had two. <laughs> and now I'm in a circle all by myself. That's where this is going if we're not careful in society. I believe we've got it in the big level of our society, this loneliness, this isolation. Nathan said a few uh, weeks ago, I didn't know this, but we have a minister in our cabinet for loneliness. A minister for loneliness because people feel so alone and all alone. And on a personal level, people feel alone. And the book of Proverbs tells us that what happens when we find ourselves in this spot of isolation and alone, we actually rage against sound judgment. But the good news is that I believe God has given us tools to fight this war with. 
weapons of war. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, says this, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. We don't fight with identity politics. Like, if you're not a Christian, we don't want to associate with you. Oh, maybe it's just me. (laughs) Maybe it's just me that thinks that the church is the welcome mat for all humanity, whoever they are. No, no, if you're not a Christian, we love you. And we welcome you. Welcome home. Welcome home. You know, because we're not going to play that game. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they've got divine power to demolish strongholds. Look at this quote. When we're isolated and we feel alone in the fight, the answer is community. The answer is community. I'm going to read some scripture today and a fair bit, a fair bit of verses. And the reason why is because I'm taking on Goliath. And so I thought I'd get the sword out. I'd chop off his head and I'd feed his flesh to the birds of the air. Sorry about that if you're squeamish. Matthew chapter 18 verses 19 and 20. Jesus says this, I tell you, if two of you agree on anything, it will be done by my Father in heaven. I think God hears your prayers when you're in your bedroom alone. I think he does. When you're all alone and you're crying out, I think God loves you, merciful to you. But what an incredible thing that you could get a prayer partner and agree with them. Somebody who would stand with you. Somebody who would walk with you. Somebody who would pray with you. Somebody who's not going to move. But he's going to be with you. Whatever the outcome, whatever you face, somebody who's going to be faithful to you. Showing you the faithfulness of God. If two of you agree. And then he goes on to say in verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am also with them. You know what that verse tells me is FaceTime's better than Facebook. Amen? That we can gather together. And Jesus says, when we gather together, I'm there. I'm with you. When we feel isolated and alone in the fight, the answer is community. What about Galatians 6 and verse 2? Again, this is the the guy Paul I mentioned earlier. He's writing to a church and he says this, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you can fulfill the law of Christ. Not only does community mean that we're supporting one another, that we're loving one another, and that Jesus is in the midst of that, and that we're together, that we're not moving further and further away, as Lewis put it, from the city of God or from people. We're actually gathering together, and there's our hope, there's our strength, there's our joy, there's our passion, there's our love. But not only that, but in that community, we share the load. We do what we can to bear one another's burdens. You know, when you're isolated and you feel alone in the fight, the answer is community. But also when you're isolated and you feel alone in the fight, the truth is God will fight for you. In, in that chapter, 1 Samuel 17, 47, of course, the, the Philistine comes out and he's got all bravo as he? bravado. He says, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air. But then David comes out and he's confident too, a little guy. And, uh, and he says, no, I, I, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the armies of the living God. And you will know today that there's a God in Israel. And then he says this, for the battle is Yahweh's. The battle is the Lord. When you are isolated and you feel alone in the fight, God will fight for you. The Philistines thought that Israel were easy pickings. After all, they've been slaves for 400 years. 
They were a young nation. They had no military to speak of. Saul was their first king and they'd asked for a king because of their insecurities. They'd seen the other nations and they'd seen the nations that were more powerful and stronger and larger. And they'd seen that these nations had armies and horses and chariots. Armies? All they had was tribes and clans and families. This nation should have never been able to settle in the promised land. They've been slaves for 400 years. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we can get a picture uh, of a powerful nation coming in, the nation of Israel being powerful and coming into the promised land to displace a weaker people. Nothing could be further from the truth. These were slaves wanting a home. These were weaker people. These were the oppressed people. And God was fighting for them because they couldn't fight for themselves. God fights on the side of the oppressed, of the rejected, and of the resisted. And he still does that today. And so when we read, as they come in and they want a home, and they're resisted, and they're rejected, and no space is given, and we read of these battles in the Old Testament, what we find is God fights for them. They haven't got the strength. They haven't got the military prowess. They haven't got the know-how, the technology. They haven't got any of that. But God fights for them. And God will fight for you. Let's think about them escaping Egypt. You know, you can read about the plagues in Egypt and you can think, wow, what a terrible thing for God to do. And forget quickly, they'd been slaves for 400 years. They'd been oppressed for 400 years. They'd been downtrodden for 400 years. They'd been beaten for 400 years. They'd been made to work seven days a week for 400 years. When they hit their quota of brick production, their quotas were raised for 400 years. They were driven by slave masters. They were beaten by slave masters. They were killed for slave masters for 400 years. And what we read when God intervenes is God saying, enough is enough. And even when he says enough is enough, he gives Pharaoh 10 chances. Let my people go 10 times. 10 chances. You see, God is patient. Patient, patient. He's even patient with Pharaoh. He's patient with evil. He's patient with oppressors. He is patient with people, wanting us to turn, wanting our hearts to be softened and for us to remove. He's patient, patient, patient until he's not. Until he cannot be patient any longer. And then he fights on the side of the oppressed. What, what about in, in the book of Judges? One more uh, illustration, Gideon. Uh, the, the Israelites have been oppressed by the Midianites. Midianites, a powerful army, a powerful group of people. And they've been oppressed for seven years. The Midianites have been coming and they've been raiding. They've been taking their crops, but not only their crops. They've been taking children. They've been taking wives. They've been oppressing people. We don't know what it's like to live in that kind of situation, oppressed for seven years. And God comes to Gideon. And when he comes to Gideon, Gideon is hiding. Why is he hiding? Because of the oppressor. And he's hiding. And God says, the angel comes to Gideon and says, God is with you, almighty man of valor. And then Gideon goes, got the wrong man. <laughs> Not me. Not me. I, in my clan, I'm the weakest. I'm the least in my family. And my family is the weakest in my tribe. And God says, you'll do. I pick you. And so Gideon begins to do what he thinks he's got to do to fight on the enemy's terms. So he gathers an army. He gets 32,000 fighting men. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? 32,000 fighting men. I can picture William Wallace shouting freedom. Gideon being 
32,000 fighting men. The Midianites have got 135,000 fighting men. And God says to Gideon, you've got too many. And Gideon says, what? And he says, you've got too many. So he says, all right, we'll have a bit of a call. They have a bit of a call. He gets it down to 22,000 men. How's that, God? Gideon says. He says, you've still got too many. What? You've still got too many. They have another call. Gideon ends up with the humongous total of 300 fighting men. Because the battle is the Lord's. And that when you and I feel alone in the battle, we feel overwhelmed, God will fight for us. Because he fights for the oppressed. And he fights for you. And he fights for me. When you feel alone in the fight, the antidote is community. When you feel alone in the battle, God will fight for you. Isolation. But what about intimidation? Intimidation. We all at times feel fear, like the Israelites did. Terror. We can feel ill-prepared. We can feel overwhelmed. We can feel we've got this giant, and he's too big. The enemy is just too strong. We can feel it in other ways too. We can feel like we're not worthy. We're just not worthy. What about our past sin? Could we ever get past our past sin? How could God forgive me? How could God look on me? I'm nothing. I'm not worthy. When we feel alone in the fight, the answer is community. But when we feel intimidated in life, the answer is our identity in Christ. Let me say that again. And the band can come back. When we feel intimidated in life, the answer is our identity in Christ. We create our identities now, don't we? All, all over social media. I've got so many like statuses. I've got so many identities, you know. I've shared some of those before. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, all of those kind of things. We create those identities. But our real identity of followers of Jesus is the identity he has given to us. And that's the thing we draw upon and we stand upon when we feel intimidated by the enemy, when we feel afraid, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel unworthy, when we wonder, can I ever get past my past? However we feel, we draw on our identity in Christ. So I want to take us today through a few scriptures. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will just seal this word in our hearts today so that we will stand up on the inside not with arrogance, but with confidence in our God that he has, he has given us an identity that causes us to know the weapons we fight with, they're not the weapons of the world. But they are mighty and they do destroy strongholds. And I believe that God can do something special in these few moments as we close this morning. Here's the first thing I want to share is that you are chosen. You are chosen by God. Ephesians 1 and verse 4 says this, for he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, let me just pause there for a second. You were chosen before the creation of the world. And you were chosen to be holy and blameless. Well, you, you, don't deserve, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve that. We could never earn that. God chose it for us. God says, I've got something for you, Paul. Holy and blameless in my sight. And I pick you. You have been chosen by God. What about the next one? You are loved. John 3.16, which is 
very familiar in the church world, but I remember as a teenager the powerful impact this had on me. John 3:16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I remember my pastor, he used to say, take the word world out of there and put your name. For God so loved you. I remember the impact that that used to have on me. For God so loved me that he gave his only son. He used to go on to say something he stole from Billy Graham, but he used to say, and if you were the only person alive, it would still say, for God so loved Paul that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, well, it wouldn't say whoever, that if Paul believes in him, he will not perish, but have eternal life. You are chosen and you are loved. And if you want to know how much you're loved, you're loved this much. That's how much we have been loved. Here's the next one. You are shame free. Shame free. Romans 8 and verse 1, Therefore, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can God forgive my past? Can God forgive my sins? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I want to encourage you, don't carry that burden any longer. Believe this word. This is your identity in Christ. Don't carry that shame any longer. Let that shame supernaturally, let God fight for you today and lift that shame from you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are shame free. Don't carry it for one second longer. It's the tactic of the enemy. Intimidation. You're not good enough. Why would God listen to your prayers? No, you're shame free. Not because of anything you've done, but as a gift from God. Is this helping anybody this morning? Next one, you're a new creation. Not only are you chosen, you are loved, you are shame free, but you're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man, we can say any man or woman, be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I like new things. So I'm happy to say it's a new day. The old is gone, the new has come. And the new is packaged from heaven. I'm a new creation. I don't always act like it. I don't always live like it. But that's who I am. That's my identity. There have been times in my life I've had to say, I think I shared it last week, I've had to say to myself, that's not who you are, you're this person in Christ. I've had to teach myself and convince myself to believe the truth of my identity in Christ and not any other truth. I'm a new creation. Not only am I chosen, not only am I loved, not only am I shame-free. You can tell I'm enjoying this, can't you? Not only am I a new creation, I'm going to keep repeating them until I get to the end. I'm more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. Romans 8.37 says, No, Paul's got this list of things. Will these things, peril, famine, nakedness, sword, will these things separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus? And he says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Hupernikomen, as Steve Morstan taught us from the Greek, more than conquerors, hypernike as I like to say it. More than a conqueror through him who loves us not only are we chosen not only are we loved not only are we shame free not only are we new creations not only are we more than conquerors but finally we are a child of God we are children of God in John 1 and verse 12 John puts it like this he says some rejected him but to all who receive him Jesus to those who believed in his name 
He gave the right to become the children of God. When you feel alone in the battle, the answer is community. When you feel alone in the battle, God will fight for you. When you feel intimidated in life, the answer is your identity in Christ. Chosen, loved, shame-free, a new creation, more than a conqueror and a child of God. Holy Spirit, my prayer today is that you would seal your word on our hearts. My prayer is that today people will walk out of this place, shame off them in Jesus' name. People will walk out knowing that they're more than a conqueror. People will walk out knowing that the tactics of the enemy have never changed, but they have all they need. They're mighty weapons of God that you give to us that pull down strongholds and that those strongholds in our lives can fall. Just like Goliath fell, those strongholds can fall. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. When you feel alone, the answer is community. When you feel alone, God will fight for you in the battle. And when you feel intimidated, the answer is your identity in Christ. Your enemy is not as powerful as you think. Come on, let's stand and let's worship God today. We sing together. I am chosen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Icon Church. If you'd like any more information about Icon Church, log on to our website at www.icon.church. Have the best week.